The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. It's my privilege to introduce our speaker tonight. Dr. Joel Beakey is the president of uh, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, which is right here in Grand Rapids. It's right on Leonard Street across from Cornerstone. And so uh, you may drive by that really nice, beautiful building with those long pillars, tall pillars. That's the seminary. He's the president there. He's the professor of systematic theology, church history, and homiletics. He's been in the ministry since 1978, and he's been the pastor at Heritage Netherlands Reform Congregation right here in Grand Rapids since 1986. He's written over 50 books and uh, contributed to over 1,500 articles. He's a prolific author. He was telling me beforehand he feels closest to God when he's actually writing, and uh, many of those books back there are, are written by him he has his wife, Mary, and three children, Calvin, Esther, and Lydia, and he is uh, a man who knows much about the Reformation. His Ph.D. was in Reformation and post-Reformation theology, and it's a real privilege to have him here in Grand Rapids and to have him here at our, our church tonight. So we've asked him to speak on the five solas, and if you don't know what that is, you're in the right place because you're going to hear about those tonight, and you'll all be able to leave um, being able to pass the quiz that we're going to give you on uh, the five solas. <laughs> So we're glad you're with us tonight. There's going to be a Q&A afterwards. So if you have questions, just kind of remember those and write those down. And uh, Dr. Beakey's going to take about 10 minutes or so when he's done to answer those questions. So let's give a big Maranatha welcome to Dr. Joel Beakey. Thanks very much, Todd, for that, uh, that warm welcome and introduction. And I'm grateful to be here tonight. I love to... Uh, bring Reformation truth to different groups of people, and so I'm uh, eager to do that with you as well. The Reformation is so rich, it's so profound, it's so intimate in fostering a close relationship with God that it's really something worthwhile hearing about. And of course, God tells us in Psalm 78 that we are to remember His works and we're to pass them on to the next generation who's to pass them on to the children that are yet to be born, who's to pass them on to the next generation that's unborn as well. And so God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a God of history. History is really His story. And so we need to tell His story, particularly on the glorious truths of the doctrines of grace that lay before us this evening in the history of the Reformation. And you know, most other religions are not historical. Uh, pagan religions don't really rely on history. Uh, the mystery religions don't rely on history. Even Islam is, well, maybe a little bit historical. But it's Christianity that is God coming down in time, the God-made man, and all of history prior to Bethlehem is really progressive, redemptive prophecies culminating in the birth of Jesus. And now we live in the historical period that is awaiting the second advent. So we're living in again in a particular time of history, in the what scholars call the now-not-yet time. Now we are in Christ. Now we have salvation. But we are not yet what we ought to be. And one day we will be perfect if we're believers, and we will be without sin in Emmanuel's land forever. So you see, Christianity is very, very historical. We need to study church history, to study how the Holy Spirit worked in that history. Now, Todd mentioned a few things about the Reformation. Reformation 
ran from 1517. Luther posted the theses on the doors, church doors of Wittenberg, October 31. That's why I usually have Reformation conferences or evenings uh, the end of October. To about 1650. Uh, that embraces also the Puritans, uh, at least the initial period of the Puritan movement. Uh, Puritans were also very reformed in their theology. So about a century and a half, you have this wonderful golden era of church history that we call the Reformation, in which Europe was turned upside down in all kinds of areas, socially, economically. Uh, there were radical changes politically, but particularly spiritually in the individual believer's soul and his relationship with God. So what was the Reformation all about? Well, if you would have asked John Calvin, the great um, systematizer of the Reformation, he would have said, the prominent thing about the Reformation is purity of worship. Purity of worship. Privately? In your family? Reformers believed in family worship every day. But especially in the church. Purity of worship. Calvin said, you cannot import anything into the church service that is not explicitly mentioned in New Testament worship. Now I wonder if you had taken your pop quiz before I began speaking tonight. And I would have said to you, what is the Reformation all about? I wonder how many of you would have put down worship. And yes, then it was about justification by faith alone. I'll be talking about that later tonight. It also was a lot to do with the authority of Scripture, and I'll be mentioning that tonight. But most of all, the Reformation was about having a personal relationship with God directly through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you picture God here, the sinner here, the wall of sin here, Christ has broken through that wall of sin. He's the one mediator between God and man. The way to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ, and God and man can be reconciled. That's the Reformation. And the Reformation simplified the whole process of salvation, then you see, because in the Roman Catholic Church, you had to go through Mary, you had to go through the priest, you had to go through the church, you had to go through bishops and the pope. And there's all these things and people in the way between you and God. And then you just had to hope for the best, and chances are, if you died, you died without assurance of faith, you went to purgatory, and people had to keep throwing money into the coffers, and eventually, eventually, maybe, perhaps, your soul would be released at some point. And so, what the Reformation did was it demolished that whole system, that hierarchical system with its 16 different offices, ranging all the way from priest all the way up to the pope, it abolished the whole business, and it taught the plain New Testament way of worship. Now, over a few generations, what happened is that, just like in many other movements, there were some watchwords, some battle cries, some slogans that began to develop. And uh, five of them took root. And they all have in them the word sola, which is the Latin word for alone, alone. And the idea was not that Roman Catholicism didn't believe at all in these five things, 
They did. But the idea was that only under the Reformation did we believe in these things alone. Rome said, I believe in these five things plus something else. And they mixed things together. They mixed grace and works together. They mixed the scriptures and tradition together. It wasn't they didn't believe in scriptures. And so five watchwords developed. All with the word alone. And the word alone is critical because that is what the Reformation is all about. All right, so you want to come on a journey with me. We're going to go to the Reformation Museum tonight with five different rooms. I'm going to take you room at a time. The first room we're going into is the room that we call Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Now, what that means is this. Here you have the Bible as the only authority. Next to it, said the Pope, you've got tradition. And if I speak, the Pope said, ex cathedra, that is from my papal chair, with an official pronouncement, I am speaking infallibly. The Bible's infallible. The Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, is infallible. You've got two equal authorities. You might call it a two-headed monster. Two heads don't work. It doesn't work in a family. That's why the Bible says there's one head in the family. It doesn't work in the church. It doesn't work anywhere. And maybe, maybe you've checked it out. Maybe when you were young, or maybe some of you teenagers, it's not a good idea, but maybe you check it out once in a while with your parents. You try to... Well, your mom and dad are both in authority, and you try. You go to mom and say, "Can I do this?" And she says, "No." And you try dad. You know, and of course, if dad is wise, he'll say, "Well, I'll get back to you in a few hours, and let me talk to mom first, and we'll get on one page, and we'll give you a united answer." But you see what happened. What happens in practice is simply this. If Mary says in Luke 1 that Jesus is her Lord and Savior, and the Pope says in 1854, as he did, ex cathedra, so it's now infallible, that Mary is sinless, who are you going to believe? Well, if you're Roman Catholic, what you're going to do is you're going to say, these are two equal streams of tradition, but it must be because the Pope said it's infallible, it's true, Therefore, my interpretation of that text, she, he's my Lord and Savior, must be wrong. I must be wrong in thinking that because she said, he's my Savior, that means that I'm a sinner. Somehow I must be missing the boat here, and the Pope's got it right, and I've got it wrong. And so in pra- for all practical purposes, you see, the Pope trumps the Scriptures. And the Reformation is the other way around. Tradition is always under the Scriptures. All right, so what do the Reformers teach about the Scriptures? They taught five things. Five things. First is, I'll give them all to you in one word so you can remember them. Authority. I just started talking to you about that. But let me just shed a little more light on that. The Reformation said, authority is absolute in the Word of God. It's not derivative. Now, those are some big words. What do they mean? Well, if it's derivative... That means it doesn't have authority in itself, but it gets its authority, it's derived from someone else. 
See, that's the Roman Catholic idea. The Bible doesn't have any authority in itself, but the Bible gets its authority because the Pope said it's authoritative. The church says it's authoritative. Therefore, it's authoritative. The Reformers said, and this isn't splitting hairs, my friends, this is very important. Reformers says, this book is a living book all by itself. It's the only book in the world like it. Other books may reform us, they may inform us to some degree. This book can transform us and conform us to the Lord Jesus Christ like no other book can. This book has its authority in itself, and all the church does is recognize its authority. So it's not derived from the church's pronouncement. It has its authority in itself. It's absolute in its authority. That's the first thing, authority. Secondly, infallibility. Infallibility. What the Reformers stressed is that there are no errors in the Word of God. It is truly the Word of God from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22. Not one word accepted. And the Reformers based this on the two major self-authenticating texts in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable, you know the text, for doctrine, reproof, instruction, correction of righteousness, and so on. The second text is 2 Peter 1.21. That holy men spake as they were moved of God. They wrote as they were moved of God, the Old Testament scriptures. Being directed by this spirit, the, the Greek word is phanareo. And phanareo means to be carried along, much like a cork is carried along the water. And the idea here is that the Bible writers are not stenographers who just sat down and just typed up whatever God said. It made no difference who, who the typist was. But what God does is he molds and trains and forms Peter to be who Peter is, Isaiah who Isaiah is, Paul who Paul is, and then he has them write exactly, using their personalities, what he wants written. So that not one jot or tittle, as Jesus said, will fall to the ground unanswered. Every jot and tittle of the Bible is inspired. That's the Reformation teaching. Now, I don't know if you know what a jot or a tittle is, but basically, let me say it this way. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, every scripture, that is every, every word of every text is inspired. Jot or tittle brings it down narrower. It says not only is every word inspired, every letter is inspired, and every part of every letter is inspired. Because a jot or tittle is like in the Hebrew language, you know, you've got letters, little different shaped letters, but then they've got a little squiggly thing at the end of a letter. You know, we have, we have that in English too. If, if, you, if, you, if you use t- Times New Romans, for example, as your, as your type font, the letters have just a little thing at the top, right? Like a T would have just a little, little dumaflang at the top. Okay? That's in Hebrew is called a jot, and, 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 the, and the lower one is called a tittle. And what Jesus is saying is, every word, every letter, every part of every letter, there's nothing accepted. Everything from the Word of God is the Word of God. So, 
That's the high, high respect the Reformers had for the Scriptures. The third word you want to remember is self-interpretation. A slightly more difficult word you could use would be self-authentication. And what that means is this, that the Bible interprets the Bible. The Reformers call this the analogy of faith. When you look at one text, another text will throw light on that text. And this really confuses people. But it it should not confuse people. It should show you the importance of knowing the whole of Scripture. Because when you know the whole of Scripture, you'll be able to say what all of Scripture says about something. Now, let me give you a quick example. You get, you get a feel of what I mean. What's the Sixth Commandment? Anybody? Anybody know the Sixth Commandment? So, pardon? What? Thou shalt not what? Murder. Okay, thank you. Thou shalt not murder. Is it? Always wrong to kill someone. The Bible says in Genesis 9, verse 6, we are to kill those who kill others, right? The Bible also legitimizes killing someone in self-defense. There is such a thing as legitimate war. So, thou shalt not kill is a general principle. It's a pretty specific one. That's the norm. But then there are these exceptions, you see. And so... You let, one, you let Genesis 9 for 6 throw light on, Gen, on Exodus 20. And that's what the Reformers were saying. Scripture interprets Scripture, and Scripture authenticates Scripture. And the beautiful thing about Scripture is that even though it's written hundreds of years apart from Genesis to Revelation, there's no contradictions. And we get that self-authentication, said the Reformers, not from the Pope, but from the Holy Spirit who interprets Scripture for us and it bears witness in our soul. Calvin called it the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Ulrich Zwingli, the father of the Reformed faith, coined the phrase which became common in the Reformation world, spiritus cum verbo. That is to say, there's harmony between the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, so He will interpret Scripture, and He will bring it home to the hearts of the people of God. Now, what the Reformers then said was this. You don't approach Scripture and say there's a fourfold way of interpreting it, the way Rome, Roman Catholicism had done. You know, there's an allegorical use, there's an analogical use, there's... All, all kinds of uses. Reformers said, no, Scripture is plain in its witness. It authenticates itself. It's got a true, plain meaning that can have different applications, but its meaning is plain. They call it grammatical, historical interpretation. You look at the grammar, you look at the history, you look at the context, you interpret it for what it says. You see, Rome had all kinds of interpretations so they could justify everything they were teaching and they saw mystical things behind texts and, and whatnot. So the Reformers were very insistent on this. Self-interpretation, self-authentication. The Bible's witness is confirmed by the Spirit's testimony in our soul. Fourth thing, liberation. Liberation. 
You see, the Pope said, I don't, I don't know if I can hand you the Bible because I don't trust you to interpret it. You know, it's dangerous for you. You don't have, you know, you, know, you don't have a PhD in theology, and of course the Pope didn't either. But, you know, the Pope said, we have to interpret it for you. We're God's ordained interpreters. Really, the church took the place of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is really superior to the word itself. And the Pope tells you what to believe together with his bishops and his prelates. Now, the reformers liberated the Bible in three different ways. First, in Luther's way, by vernacular translation. Luther translated the Bible into German. People could finally read the Bible in their own language. It wasn't buried in some Latin tome in a, in a library chained to a wall. They could actually read it and understand it. And as Luther said, a plowboy plowing in the field with the Word of God in his hand and just a little bit of help from my catechism, he could understand the Word of God. So that's a vernacular translation. That liberated the people through the Bible. But Zwingli came along and he liberated the people through what we call expository preaching. Now, this sounds so obvious to us. You say, you know, what's the big deal? But do you know when Zwingli started preaching from Matthew 1, verse 1, and started preaching through the New Testament, the people were so amazed that people would say to each other, you've got to go to Einstein and you've got to hear this guy. He's preaching the Bible. Can you believe it? A preacher's preaching the Bible. Now, to us, it's so we take it so for granted. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of the Reformation. And so people would go to Einstein just to hear this amazing thing. Here's a guy not preaching in Latin, mumble-jumble that nobody can understand. He's actually preaching the local language, and he's preaching through the Word of God, and he's not straying from his text. He's actually telling us, thus saith the Lord, and he's preaching with the authority of the Scriptures. It's amazing. It's liberating the Bible, liberating souls. Expository preaching. And the third thing, is this straightforward historical grammatical exegesis that is best exemplified by John Calvin's commentaries. I don't know how many of you own them, but they're amazing. Calvin's commentaries are centuries ahead of anything else written in expositing the Scripture. Even Luther's commentaries, good though they were. I mean, Luther, every other page, he's beating up the Pope. Every other page is coming back to telling you how terrible the law is. Because it convicts you and beats you all the way to Christ. These kinds of things. Luther has some good exegesis. Luther is very quotable. But Calvin deals with a text straightforward and gives you that particular text in that particular situation without repetition. He really expounds the Word of God. He becomes the model for all the commentaries that have been written ever since then. He liberates the Scripture for the people through common sense Godly, biblical, grammatical, historical exegesis. And then fifthly, power. Power. So in the Reformation, you've got authority, infallibility, self-interpretation, liberation, and then power. Once these first four things were put in place, people experienced an incredible power under the preaching and the reading of the Word of God. They no longer cowered in front of the Pope, but they experienced the authority of the Word of God once they got all these different mediators out of the way 
And it was Christ alone, by the Holy Spirit's work in my soul alone, carrying me to God alone, to glorify God alone, through the Word alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, there was a power that was unleashed that turned Europe upside down. And so people would give their lives. They gave their lives for the Word of God. They'd go to the stake and be burnt. Tyndale, Tyndale was martyred because he translated the Bible. And he wasn't the only one. And so I want to ask you this evening, are you really a son and a daughter of the Reformation? Do you live sola scriptura? Is the scripture everything to you? Could, could, could you survive without scripture in your home for two weeks? A month? A year? Are you reading it every day? Are you memorizing it? Do you love it? Do you live it? Is it your lifeblood? Can you say with Luther, Scripture is everything to me. You know, Luther said at one point, uh, people say that I started the Reformation. I didn't start anything. I didn't do anything. The Word of God did everything. I just brought the Word of God. The Word of God did everything. I'm nothing. Sola Scriptura. If you're a son and daughter of the Reformation, my friend, this scripture means everything to you. It's the mirror with which you dress yourself, James 1. It's the rule by which you work, Galatians 6. It's the water with which you wash, Psalm 119. It's the fire that warms you, Luke 24. It's the food that nourishes you, Job 23. It's the sword with which you fight, Ephesians 6. It's the counselor that resolves your doubts and fears, Psalm 119. It's the heritage that enriches you. John Flavel, one of the most famous Reformed Puritans, put it this way, the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most profitable way of dying is sola scriptura. So, can you say with Martin Luther, with John Calvin, with the Reformers, with the Puritans, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. My life is sola scriptura. That's what you need to be able to say. Now, secondly, we're going to go from that first room of the museum into a second room. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Grace alone. Martin Luther, early on, had a huge debate with a man named Erasmus. You probably remember studying him in high school. And Erasmus poked a lot of fun of the Roman Catholic Church. He wrote a book called The Praise of Folly and really showed his, um, his mockery of the church, actually. He just thought the church was awful in many ways. And yet, Erasmus said, we are saved partly by grace and partly by our works. You've got to have both. And you see, Erasmus was just following the greatest Roman Catholic theologian that the Roman Catholic Church ever had. You know, as Reformed people, we look to Calvin as, as the premier theologian. Roman Catholics, till today, look to Thomas Aquinas, um, lived around 1200 or so. And Aquinas wrote, you know, 30-some volumes on theology. Summa Theologia. Huge set of books on theology. And basically what Aquinas said in this area is this, that salvation is like a two-story house. 
Okay? Let's picture this, uh, this row of blocks here. Is floor one. This is floor two. And Aquinas said floor one is nature. Floor two is grace. If you want to get saved, you've got to get up to floor two. You've got to be with God. God is up on floor two. Floor one is just nature. If you don't get saved, you'll go to hell. There's a stairway going from floor one to floor two, said Aquinas. And what you've got to do, every one of you, you've got to do your best to climb up that stairway to God as best you can. Now, if you make it up only three or four steps, don't worry. Just do the best you can. God will come down. He'll pick you up where you are, as long as you make it up at least one step. He'll, and he'll, he'll bring you up. You do your best. Ever hear this before? God will do the rest. That's vintage semi-Pelagianism, Roman Catholicism, free willism, whatever you want to call it. Easy believism. And so what happens, you see, is you do part, God does part. It's kind of a cooperative business. Reformers said, the Bible teaches us we're so depraved, you can't make it up step one, my friend. You are a sinner. You can't take one step to God. God must do it all. It's all grace. It's all grace. May I ask you tonight, do you you believe that? Are you a son and are you a daughter of the Reformation? Do you believe that you're saved by grace alone? By grace and works. Sola gratia. Well, Well, what is this word grace? Well, I was once in a nursing home and visiting an elderly parishioner when I was in New Jersey some 30 years ago and I noticed, looking across her bed, that there was a little 3 by 5 index card on the wall. And I was kind of curious. And she noticed my curiosity. She said, Pastor, you can go around. You can read it. Because it's my whole life. My whole life is on an index card. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went around and read it. And this is what it said. It was an acrostic. Grace. And then, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, that isn't everything that grace is, but that gets to the heart of it. God gives sinners riches. I'd like to say God's riches at Christ's expense to hell-worthy sinners. That's grace. Because Christ came and did what we cannot do so that we could be saved. That's grace. And God gives it to us. Now, my father was an elder for 40 years, a ruling elder for 40 years. When I grew up, I was in all his catechism classes. I, he taught me many, many years. He taught me hundreds of wonderful things. And he used to always put on the chalkboard when he was teaching, grace equals unearned favor. I remembered that. I remembered that. I used it as a preacher for many years. Unearned favor. But the last 10 years or so, I've been thinking, you know, that's too weak of a definition. It's not unearned favor. It's more than that. It comes to hell-worthy sinners. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's say uh, a gentleman at the front table here. You and I make a deal, right? You're going to work for me for one week. I'll give you uh, $1,500 if you work hard for one week, 40 hours. You say, wow, that's a good deal. I'll do that. Okay, we sign a contract. 40 hours later... 
after you're supposed to work really hard and finish my project I gave you to do, I find out you sloughed off on the job. You didn't do a thing for 40 hours. Not one thing. I still give you $1,500. That's grace. Well, sort of. But what happens if this brother was so audacious and he took the project I gave him to work on and he destroyed it and cut holes in it, smashed it to bits? And after 40 hours, I looked at him and said, well, here's $1,500. That's grace. You see, that's what Jesus did for us. If we're believers, we spit him in the face with our sin and he went to die for us, to give us grace. That's amazing. Grace is amazing. Grace is phenomenal. That's what the reformers said salvation is all about. God gives the best he could find, his only begotten son, for the worst he could find, hell-worthy sinners like you and me. It's not a mixture of my grace, my works, and God's grace. It's not a mixture of God being a little bit better than we are. It's a mixture of God who is alone good, giving salvation to us who are entirely bad by nature, performing wondrous things. Now, the Reformers never taught, as, the, as Rome says, that total depravity means you're always as bad as you can possibly be. If that were true, we'd all be killing each other right now. Or we'd all be robbing a bank right now. Society wouldn't, well, society wouldn't even survive. There is such a thing as common grace that God enables us to restrain ourselves to some degree, and society can function. What total depravity simply means is this, that when God scrutinizes every part of who we are, be it our mind, be it our heart, be it our conscience, be it our hands, be it our feet, be it our will, be it our affections, He sees sin everywhere. There's no part of us where He looks upon us and says, now that part of you is entirely pure. We are totally depraved. That is, every part of us is stained by sin. So that's what the Reformers taught in that second room of our museum tonight, that everything depends on grace. So the whole order of salvation is gracious. That's why Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 15, you are called by grace. In Titus 3, you're regenerated by grace. In Romans 3, you're justified freely by grace. In Hebrews 13, you're sanctified by grace. And in 1 Peter 1, you are preserved to the end by grace. It's all grace. We need grace to forgive us, grace to return us to God, grace to heal our broken hearts, grace to strengthen us in times of trouble. Sovereign grace is our salvation. You see, God's sovereign grace crushes our pride. It shames us. It humbles us. We want to be the subjects of salvation, not the objects of salvation. We want to be active, not passive in the process. But God says, amazing grace is what I choose to give sinners who trust in my Son. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be, says the true believer. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. That's grace. Let's go to room three. Sola fide. Faith alone. Faith alone. This is really what Luther discovered in about 1514 or 1515 when the gospel broke through in his life. 
He was trying so hard. You, you know the story. He was, uh, he was fasting. He was uh, um, sleeping at night on cement. He was uh, trying to deny himself, uh, trying to please God. And every time he tried to please God, there was a little voice inside of him that said, Is it enough? Is it enough? You see, what Luther was understanding, though he, didn't, couldn't, he couldn't quite grasp it fully, is that the finite man can never please or make satisfaction for sin toward the infinite, which is God. Our finite personalities can only make finite satisfaction at best, even if we could live sinlessly. But God is infinite. God is infinitely angry with sin. So the only way to be saved is if someone takes our place who's infinite, that is someone who's God, and who becomes man and suffers and dies in our nature, only then can the infinite satisfy the infinite. And so Luther's grappling with this word, the righteousness of God. He sees how holy God is, how righteous God is. He can never be perfectly righteous. And so he comes to hate the righteousness of God. He says, I hated it until... He came across Romans 1, 17 one day, and then suddenly, suddenly, the light went on for him, and he said it was like his soul was liberated into the gates of an open paradise. Romans 1, 17, this is what he read. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And suddenly he saw it. He saw the gospel. It's not my works. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is salvation from beginning to end. It's all about faith in him. He said, his soul was liberated. Let's just say this... uh, piano here is a rock, a big rock, symbolical of the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. If I'm standing here and I've got 20 heavy strands of a spider's web attaching me to that rock, I've got a pretty firm attachment. I'm trusting in this rock alone. I've got this strong connection. That's great. But what if I'm standing over here, far away from the rock, and I've only got one little thin thread attaching me to that rock? Well, what Luther saw was this, that whether I have weak faith or strong faith, if my faith is attached to this rock, and this rock is all my hope, and that rock is Christ, and I'm built on that rock, whether I'm weak or I'm strong, I'm saved. Faith alone. Faith alone. And so I'm not saved because I have faith in my faith. I'm saved because I have faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the object. Now let me make it very plain for the boys and girls here tonight. Let's say, boys and girls, you're walking through a desert. And you get very thirsty. In a desert, you can get very thirsty. sun's beating down. Oh, you can hardly wait. And you get to the end of the desert, and there you see... A great big glass of water in a cup, but the cup is bolted down onto a table. 
and you can't tip the cup. You can't get the water. The lid on the cup is fastened down, clamped down. You can't open the clamps. There's no way to get the water. There's only a little hole in the top, but you can't get it. What do you need? What do you need, boys and girls? To get the water. A straw, of course. If you take a straw, ah, you just taste this water. This delicious water. But you don't take the straw, do you, boys and girls? And you don't say, oh, what a wonderful straw. You say, oh, what wonderful water. You see, faith is a straw. Faith is the means by which you get the water. The water of life, Jesus Christ, into you. Faith is the way you get into Christ. Paul said 165 times in his epistles. In Christ. The only way you get into Christ (coughs) is by faith. And so faith and grace are not competitors. It's not that, oh well, I've got faith, therefore this, that's, that's a work. Faith is a work. It must be grace, and it's partly my works that gets me saved because I've got faith. No, faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says. The Holy Spirit works faith. And faith has not anything to do with works because faith focuses totally on the person outside of me that saves me. Faith is object-centered, the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith is gracious through and through. And you see, Rome, Roman Catholicism never realized that. That's why they blended justification and sanctification. They said, if you first get sanctified, you go up a few of those steps, then God will reach down and justify you. You go partway, God will do the rest. No, said the Reformers. God must save us. and He must impute that salvation to us. And then we will live out of it, sanctified and holy lives. So that leads us naturally into the fourth room in our museum, which is Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. You know, it wasn't just Martin Luther that posted 95 theses on the church doors of Wittenberg. Ulrich Zwingli wrote 67 theses and published them in 1523, six years after after Luther. And those theses are even more Christ-centered than Martin Luther's work. Uh, It's amazing, the insights that that Zwingli had. Zwingli uh, writes things like this, Christ is the head of all believers who are his body. Without him, the body is dead. Thesis number seven. Christ is the only mediator between God and us. Thesis 19. Christ is our righteousness and our righteousness alone. Thesis 22. God alone forgives sins through Jesus Christ our Lord alone. Thesis 50. And on and on it goes. In Christ is life. Outside of Christ is death. They said. Thank you. And this Savior, you see, Therefore, can meet all your needs, because everything's in him. He's prophet to teach you. He's priest to sacrifice for you and pray for you. He's king to rule and guide you. You don't need any, anything else. He meets all your needs. I once had a lady come to me, and she said, this is 20-some years ago. She said, I, 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 I want to divorce my husband. I said, really? Was he unfaithful to you? No, no. So well, you know there's only one grounds for divorce in the scripture. Well, she said, but he doesn't love me. I said, well, how do you know he doesn't love me, love you? 
Well, she said, because he doesn't meet all my needs. Well, I just, you know, when you're counseling somebody, you're not supposed to act too surprised. So I said, my dear friend, may, may I suggest to you the possibility that there's no one on this earth, no human being on this earth that can meet all your needs. That's why we have religion. There's only, only Christ can meet all your needs. I, I couldn't get through to her. She actually went ahead and, and divorced this man and, and married another and divorced him in shorter order. You see, we've got to stop, friends. We've got to stop looking for things on this earth that can meet all our needs. Jesus Christ is the answer. Solus Christus. And when we look to Him, we find true joy, true peace, true meaning, true success, true fulfillment. There was a conductor, 19th century conductor, Arturo Toscanini. wasn't really such an admirable fellow in some ways, but he was a great conductor. Conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony one evening, 1870s, around in there. And uh, the people could not stop applauding. They just kept applauding. And he kept coming out and bowing and bowing and bowing. And people kept giving a standing ovation. Just, they just thought it was wonderful. They thought it was beautiful. Finally, orchestra kept bowing, kept bowing. Finally, Tuscanini turned around and he whispered something to the orchestra. He was visibly moved. The orchestra leaned forward. What, what was he saying? And then they heard it. They heard his hoarse whisper. Gentlemen, gentlemen, you, you are nothing. And I, I am nothing. But Beethoven... Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. Well, he was wrong, of course. But as you and I walk across the stage of this life, what we need to learn most of all in the experiential reality of our soul is that you and I are nothing in ourselves and that Jesus Christ is absolutely everything. Solus Christus isn't something you just learn up here. Solus Christus is something you learn here. And when you learn it here, you learn it with your hands as well. And you, you develop, by the grace of God, a head, heart, hand Christianity that wants to serve this wonderful, this glorious, this beautiful prophet, priest, king. And that leads me into the fifth and final room, which is soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. You know, this is what life is all about. All four of these other solas actually lead to this one. Who gets the glory? Rome says, the Pope does, and Christ does. No, said the Reformers. God alone, the triune God. The Reformation was Trinitarian. It wasn't just Christ. But through Christ, the Father and the Spirit as well. Like the, Pur- the Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford said. I hope you've heard of him. He's, he wrote the letters of Samuel Rutherford, one of the most glorious books ever written on the face of this earth. Most Christ-centered books I've ever read in my life. Letters of Rutherford. Go out and get your copy. Rutherford said this, I know not which divine person I, I love the most, but this I know. I need each of them, and I love them all. Glory to God alone. If you're a Christian, 
You're a son and daughter of the Reformation. You love the Father. You love the Son. You love the Holy Spirit. And you want to serve and praise that triune God forever and ever and ever. That's the ultimate goal of Christianity. As Jonathan Edwards, another Reformation Puritan, said this, he said, the greatest moments in my life are not even those that concern my own salvation, but those that lifted me up beyond myself to behold the glory of God so that I got the most joy in my life when my Savior and the triune God was glorified. That's the way to live. That's the way to die. I had a brother who was 19 years old when I was 16. We shared a bedroom. One night he came home. He said, uh, hey, Joe, he said, I figured out what life is all about. and I could put it in one word. I said, wow, that's cool. One word. Tell me, what is it? He said, service. I said, huh? Service. Explain. Well, he said, it's quite simple. God made us to glorify Him, to serve our neighbor, to serve God and serve our neighbor. And it's only when we get born again and get back in Christ and, and find our joy in a triune God that we have a heart that goes out and serves God and serves our neighbor. And that's what life is all about, glorifying God. You know, at the time I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Forty-some years later, I, I think it's even better. This is really what life is all about. And if you really want to be a son and a daughter of the Reformation, this should be your goal. Saved by grace, you go back out and you serve this blessed, worthy, beautiful God with all the energy of your being. Because He is worthy. And as you do so, you say, I'm but an unprofitable servant. If I had 10,000 hearts, said Samuel Rutherford, I would give them all to Christ. Wouldn't keep one for myself. He's so worthy to be served. May I ask you tonight, are you serving the Savior out of gratitude? Or are you still like Roman Catholicism trying to earn your salvation in one way or another? Do you really love the Lord? Have you been born again? Have you been brought to that faith, that faith that closes with Christ, that embraces Christ, that finds everything in Christ? Can you say with Martin Luther, faith is the ring that clasps the diamond of my soul, the Savior. You know, when you ladies got engaged, and you got a diamond, I don't think you walked around like this, did you? Look, look at my, look at my diamond. No. You didn't say, look at my ring. You didn't say, look at the straw. You said, no, look at, look at my diamond. Our lives must smell the aroma of Christ. People must see in us that we are in love with Jesus Christ. I'm blessed with a, I'm blessed with a wonderful wife and I'm blessed to have opportunities to do conferences and all over the world and Wherever I go, I tell people how wonderful a wife I have. I've actually had people say to me, well, you've got to come back a couple of years later and speak again. and You've got to bring your wife with you. We'll, we'll pay your whole ticket because we've got to see you know, this amazing woman that you're talking about. We've got to meet her. So they give her a whole free ticket. I mean, I didn't do it for that purpose. 
But it's because, you see, I was boasting about it. But that's the way a Christian should go everywhere, boasting about Jesus. We should, we should see every unconverted person we meet as, as a mission field. And we should yearn to bring him the glories and the beauties of our triune God. Oh, that my life were more to the glory of God. Some of you sitting here tonight may not know this Savior at all. So I want to close this talk this evening with, with a story. A true story. In the 1850s, there was an English wealthy businessman who went to California to make millions more in, in the 1850s gold rush. And he made millions more. And he was going back to England via New Orleans and, and New York uh, to catch the ship from New Orleans. And he did what tourists normally do at that time in the 1850s. He, he went to see the infamous slave trading block. And when he came around the corner, there was a beautiful young African woman being sold on the block. And he saw two young men debating, trying to outbid each other and debating what they would do with this woman. And some awful things were mentioned if they were to get her. And the Englishman became very angry. He got the auctioneer's attention. He said, I'll give twice the price anyone else will give for this slave. And the auctioneer said, no one's ever given so much for a slave before. Do you really have the money? And the man reached in his pocket. He waved the money. And the auctioneer said, sold. The man came forward. And he reached up the block to, to, bring, to bring down the young woman. And she got down at his level and she spit him in the face. He wiped the spit away. He took her a few blocks away into an office. He argued a bit with the man in the office and finally said, I've got a right to do this, he said. And he finally got papers from the man and he signed the papers. And he turned around and he said to the young woman, here are your manumission papers. And she spit him in the face. He wiped the spit away. He said, don't you understand? You are free. These are your freedom papers. And the woman stared at him, amazed. And finally, she crumpled at his feet and she began to cry. And cried and cried. And finally she looked up at him and she said, Sir, do you mean to tell me you bought me just to set me free? Yes, he said. And she began to cry some more. And she finally looked up at him and she said, Sir, I have just one request. Can I be your slave forever? You see, that's what happens to a Christian. That's why Paul calls himself at the beginning of most of his epistles, a doulos of Jesus Christ in the Greek language. It means a willing slave, a willing servant, captured for life to serve the Lord. Soli Deo Gloria. if you're a Christian sitting here tonight, that's your desire. You grieve that you don't always live it out. You don't always serve Him the way you would. But if you're not a Christian, I'm saying to you tonight, that is the way, the only way to live, the only way to die, the only way to meet God. Saved in the blood of Jesus Christ, purchased by His blood. He paid the infinite price. He paid far more than double the price. He gave Himself 
in the bloody death of the cross, will you not fall at his feet and weep out of gratitude for him setting you free through his finished work, taking the spit of your sins on his face and just wiping it away and going on and suffering and dying for you? You spitter. And then will you not look up and say to him, let me serve you forever. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we pray that we may be true sons and daughters of the Reformation. That we may truly live sola scriptura and sola fide and sola gratias and solus Christus and soli Deo gloria that our lives may reflect that we know Thee and love Thee and long for Thy glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I take a few, a few questions, I've got a, just a little bit of time here. Um, I'd like to just say a little word about the books uh, before I forget. Um, Reformation Heritage Books is a um, non-profit book dealer. We started 15 years ago. And what we were burdened was with was that so many bookstores offer a lot of fluff. And people get catalogs in the mail. They don't, they don't know what to buy. They don't know what's sound. They don't know what's reform. So we said, we will only sell material that's reformed. If we make any money, of it, we'll, any money from it, we'll send it to Africa in the form of books to African pastors, who, by the way, have an average library of nine books. And so we've done that over the years. We've sent uh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of books to foreign countries, including especially Africa, to, to pastors. Um, so we operate nonprofit. That means we can also sell books really cheaply. All our books are like 20 to 50% discount. When I do conferences like, like this tonight... We bring mostly our own publications, but we carry 3,500 books from all the different public publishers in our catalog, which you can pick up. And the first price is the retail. The second price is, is our discount price. But when I bring books from our own publications at conferences, I have a special price at conferences where you can take them at 50% discount as, as kind of a welcome introduction to our, to our book ministry. So there's an annual catalog there you can pick up. And there's a thing called Tola Lega. These are quarterly supplements. You can get on the mailing list, and we'll send you four catalogs a year. One annual, and then the three, the three uh, quarterlies. Um, the other free item on the table I might mention to you is the Banner of Sovereign Grace Truth. This is uh, our periodical. It's a family periodical. It has uh, an article about the best books that came out in the last month or two. It's got uh, articles for children, articles for young people, uh, editorial, uh, practical, contemporary articles, experiential articles. It's a family periodical aimed for everyone in your family. And that's only $20 a year, which is below cost. You can subscribe to that. In terms of books, I'll mention a few of them here to you quickly. Romans, this is a, one of several journals. This is actually a book without any content. It's, all, it's got just numbers on the right. What you do is you write out the scriptures. You write out the whole book of Romans by hand. It's called the 1718 series. 
Because it says in Deuteronomy 17, 18, that when we write out the scriptures, they can be inscribed in our heart. And thousands and tens of thousands of people have experienced this. When you write out the scriptures, you meditate on them as you write, they speak to you more than when you just read them. On the left side of the page, there are just a few questions printed faintly. You can write right over them. You can take notes on these verses. Or you can answer the questions if you want to. But these books are just, like, I think they're $10 a piece, $15 retail. So tonight you could have them for $7.50. Uh, take one along and uh, start, start your own journal, uh, writing out the Word of God. This book is called Living by God's Promises. We're starting something new on this book. This is the first one in a new series. came out about two weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now. And what we're doing is we're taking old antiquarian Puritan volumes. And we're taking the best of them, bringing them together on neglected subjects today, and telling them in a contemporary way, in the 150-page paperback, rather than 700-page hardbacks. Um, there was 2,000 pages of material that got condensed down into 150 pages and then made contemporary in this book. So this is the cream of what the Puritans have to say on the wonderful subject of the promises of God, about which there's nothing very good written today in the whole English market. The second volume is now in the editor's hands. It's on zeal, living zealously. Puritans speak a lot about zeal. Where do you find a good book on zeal today? Third volume is almost done. It's called Living with a Good Conscience. Puritans spoke a lot in conscience. So that's the idea of this series. If you've always wanted to get into the Puritans, you don't know where to begin, this is a good place to begin. And then from there, maybe you can graduate to reading some of the actual Puritans themselves. This is a brand new book, uh, A Portrait of Paul, uh, inscribed by John, John MacArthur and others, written by two ministers, talking about what a minister should be and what you should look for in a minister. It's, it's a great book. It just came out last week. Um, John MacArthur's own bookstore took 500 at his shot. Westminster Seminary's bookstore sold 2,000 copies in the first two days of, of this book. So we're really excited about this book. The Path of True Godliness, Willem Tielank, he was the founder of the Dutch Further Reformation that built on the initial Reformation and that stressed godly living. This is the best book I've ever read in my entire life on living the Christian life, The Path of True Godliness. It's an amazing book, freshly translated. So even though it was written in the 1600s, it sounds like it was written yesterday, written in a translated in a contemporary way. Um, two more books, and I want to say something about children's books. Uh, this book is called Living for God's Glory. The kind of thing I said to you tonight is what this book is packed with. This book presents to you the Reformed faith, it's called An Introduction to Calvinism. The Reformed faith from 28 different angles, like snapshots, showing you that Calvinism is warm and contagious. This is the book to give to your neighbor who's interested. This is the book to fortify your own Reformed convictions. Living for the glory of God. I actually wrote this with eight other men like Sinclair Ferguson and Michael Haken. You've probably heard of them. And uh, we put it together. And R.C. Sproul has published it for us. It's one of our one of our best-selling books. And then our best-selling book is Meet the Puritans. I put this together with another fellow over a 20-year period. This takes all the Puritans that have been reprinted in the last 50 years, and there's 150 different authors and 700 different volumes. And it tells you the life story of each one of the 150 men. So you can read it as a daily devotional. Read from two to five pages a night. 
Uh, as your daily devotional, read about the story of another great reformer, uh, a Puritan reformer, and then you could read about the different books that they've written that have been republished and where to get them. So this book, we've sold uh, 20-some thousand copies in the last two years. Uh, people are getting it all over the world and getting excited about getting into the Puritans. So I'd highly recommend that to you. I bought a whole bunch of them. Um, it's a $35 book, but tonight you can get it instead of the normal discount price of 25 you can get it for $17.50. All right, children's books. We specialize in children's books, and I invite you to come to the seminary at 2965 Leonard to, to see that for yourself if you have children. We love it when, when, when parents come with children into the bookstore. We have over 300 titles of children's books, and guess what? They're all reformed. We cultivate them from all the republishers, even small publishers around the world. We specialize in children's books. This one I wrote myself with a lady from our church. It's called Reformation Heroes. What it does, it takes the life story of 40 reformers. Not just Calvin and Luther, whose stories you probably know, but Peter Martyr, Henry Bullinger, um, Martin Butzer. Do you know their life stories? We found out after we published it, adults, adults didn't know. So it's written at a 10 to 15 year old level. It's got an adult bibliography in the back if you want to study the people further. And it's got, uh, it's filled with art drawings and a, a new oil, new, new pencil paintings of, of these men. So it's, it's a coffee table book, glossy pages, top quality, 40 heroes. So that children will have these kinds of heroes rather than sports heroes and Hollywood heroes and people that we worship in our American culture that aren't worth worshiping. Um, I may have said that just a little bit strong, but I, I kind of meant it. Um, then there are these, this series of books by Simonetta Carr. She's a, a lady from California who's writing, writing books for children around 10 years of age, 10 to 12. And um, this is on John Calvin. We just came out with one yesterday on John Owen, the great, the most famous Puritan, and also one on Augustine. And, and each one of these are profusely illustrated with a, Original oil paintings. They're really special books also. Coffee table books with glossy pages. Read, read really easy for children. Introduce them to um, the great figures of church history. This is God's Technology. It's a DVD actually but by my colleague David Murray. And he's teaching parents how to control um, the use of Internet in the home and that type of thing. This advice is really, really neat. And it's fantastic. They put... My colleague put hundreds of hours of work into this. It's very professionally done. Um, Chuck Colson, just uh, last week, mentioned on his program and said, you've got to get this, he said to his, his radio listeners. And uh, this, this, this DVD is really going places. I think we're going to sell tens of thousands of it. It's brand new. just came out last month. Um, and then this series of books has been out a few years, but in case you don't have it, you're going to want to get it. It's five books. Together in the back of all five spines together, it says Building on the Rock. It's true 19th century stories retold by a woman in my church and myself um, in contemporary language. They're very exciting stories about answers to prayer and providence happenings. And just very exciting. It's supposed to be a daily devotional for children 7 to 14. It's got illustrations. It's got Q&A, scripture reading, and prayer points for each story. Children are supposed to read one a day. But the stories are so exciting, they'll read a whole volume in one day. 
So after a week, they'll come back and say, I'm through all five volumes, Mom. Can you get me five more? So it's a $45 set at conferences. Of course, the price will be $22.50. So let me whet your appetite to get some good books for your family. Thank you for listening to me. And I'll take a few questions now, and then afterwards I'll be at the book table. What questions do you have about the Reformation or anything related to it? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, 1523. Zwingli's uh, 67 Theses, yep. Yes, sir. Well, I think that's a false statement. Um, some of the ancient church fathers said all our authority is based on the Word of God, but they hadn't developed fully the, the doctrines of inerrancy, infallibility, and that type of thing until the Reformation. But the seeds are there. And you need to understand that in church history, um, there was progression by the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit over the centuries. The great struggle of the ancient fathers in the early centuries was, who is God? Who is the Trinity? How do the three persons relate to one another? So that's what they really developed, what you call theology proper, our doctrine of God. And the doctrine of Scripture was indeed developed more by the Reformers, but it's untrue to say it wasn't there at all in the ancient fathers. Well, that shows even more ignorance because the Roman Catholic Church really didn't begin until about 590 uh, with, with Pope Gregory. And that's the beginning of the Middle Ages when the Roman Catholic Church was really birthed from, from our perspective. Now, they're going to say that, you know, the popes go all the way back to, to, to Peter and so on. But um, prior to that, no one called it the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic as you probably know, in the English language, with the small c, simply means universal. So all Ignatius was saying was that the church is universal, the church is everywhere. And today, because the Roman Catholic Church has become so big, if I say to you, um, you know, it's a Catholic church, you're going to think of the Roman Catholic Church. And so the Catholics have hijacked the word Catholic, uh, which is kind of defaulted over to them. But really, when you say the, the church is Catholic, you just really mean the church is, church is universal. Yes? Um, well, last year um, here we had um, a movie, a DVD or something like that on Martin Luther, and I was just wondering, is that last year's week or whatever it was? Anyway, yes. So do you have anything I could buy that would be like a DVD? Because I just got a brand new one for my birthday, and I'd love to... Play some of those uh, DVDs on all the guys, like John Calvin and the whole list of them. How about yeah. Augustine and all that? All those guys. Yeah, you can you can get those, and you can get some pretty good ones. 
But we made a self-conscious decision that we wouldn't diversify too much, so we, we stick with books. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very good question. How do you appreciate, grow to appreciate church history? Well, first of all, the pastor has to be excited about it himself and has to recommend books and tell people how important it is and share evenings like this. I, I hope tonight, um, no matter how much you know about the Reformation, I hope you learned a few more things. And if you don't know much about it at all, I hope you learned a whole lot. But nights like this make people feel, I, I trust, that a lot happened in church history. You see, some people, some Christians say, oh, well, I don't need church history because all we got is the Bible, sola scriptura, that's all we need. Well, in terms of authority, infallible authority, that's all you need. But don't forget, the Holy Spirit did work for the last 2,000 years. And many of the doctrines that we embrace are carefully thought out from the scriptures. You know, it's, I look at it this way. When my first pastorate was to 700 farmers in northwest Iowa, I didn't know the first thing about farming. Huh? Sioux Center. You're from where? Ah, yes. Okay. Okay. Close by. Well, I didn't know the first thing about, about farming. So I looked around. I looked around. I found a deacon who never said a word. I mean, the guy never said a word. Any meeting. The whole, the whole year, he never said a word. I said, I, I want to go to be with him. So I didn't want anybody to know how stupid I was. So I went over to his house. I said, can you take me out into your barn? He said, sure. I said, okay. I went out in the barn. I asked him all the stupid questions I had on my mind. I learned so much. And I, I was laying in bed. Just I was so happy. Man, I know everything there is to know about farming. This is great. And I woke up the next morning. I forgot everything. It's like gone. Okay. But I also realized, the more I got to know those farmers, I didn't know anything about farming, and even that after that night, I didn't know hardly anything about farming. There's so much more to learn. Farming is so much more complicated, so much heavier investment, so much riskier. Man, I grew in respect for farming. Now, what happens when you don't know anything about church history is you think it's not that important. I mean, I just thought, I just thought they put seed in the soil, you know, and watched it grow and harvested it, and it was done. It's so much more complex. Church history is as well. There's so much to learn. I mean, I've been studying church history for 40 years. I'm more excited about it than when I began. And I feel like I'm just beginning after 40 years. There's so much more to learn. And I think that's the kind of excitement we, we need to convey. Not just as church leaders, but you need to convey to each other. Get some good books on church history. Read the Reformation heroes. Start talking about them. Get a Bible study together. There's Bible study questions or church history questions. You can do a, a study together as a group of people. Um, Spend some time reading Martin Bootser and Henry Bullinger and find out what these great, great men of God believe. And once you get the sense of church history, you begin to realize how tremendously the Holy Spirit worked in church history. And it will just enrich, enrich all your doctrines, all your understandings. And do remember, those who know church history are prone not to repeat the errors of the past. All right. I think the pastor standing up, that means my time is done here. Yes.
Yes. On living the Christian life. Well, because it explains to you um, not only the experiences of your own soul and how, how the Holy Spirit works in your soul, but also your duty to go out and live for the glory of God. It's a challenging book. And uh, how you should be motivated. Uh, it's very convicting about how you should be motivated for, with, with, out of purity for, for the truth and things like that. Let's thank Dr. Beakey for tonight. We've done this tonight to uh, create in you a desire to learn more about church history. We, we have to know church history. And this was an attempt tonight to encourage you to do that. The other thing we want you to do as a result of tonight is to love the gospel. He said you're sons and daughters of the Reformation. If you know Christ, you are a son or daughter of the Reformation. And being a son or daughter of the Reformation, you by nature love the gospel. And we want to continue to love what Christ did. And we want to continue to delve deeper into the mysteries of the gospel. There's so many facets to the gospel. We'll spend the rest of our earthly life trying to understand them. And this was just a, a scratching the surface of seeing how glorious the gospel is and the importance for us to need to understand what God did in the Reformation. So, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. I want you to study those truths. I want you to know those truths. And as a church, we want to continue to cultivate our love uh, for those truths. Just to put in one more plug in some of those books, I have read Reformation Heroes. I have read your booklet on family worship. Great little book. If you are a, a father leading your family in worship, get his book on family worship. And uh, our kids are devouring this Building the Rock series. So go back there, buy some books tonight. Uh, those are the kind of books that we're trying to stock our church library with as well because we want to promote meat and solid truths and solid books for you to read. And if it's not in there, drive over to the seminary at uh, Puritan Reformed, and, and they'll have it over there. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.